welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Today, I'm delighted to introduce our guest, Seth Miller, who is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida, an organization which is very close to my heart. Seth is just not the power and passion behind this nonprofit organization, but he's a dear friend as well. And he's been head of the Innocence Project of Florida since 2006, and he's also the president of a worldwide organization that's called the Innocence Network, which is composed of all the Innocence Projects here in the United States and many around the world. Our Florida project gets a thousand letters a year asking for help. And Seth is going to tell us more about the Innocence Project of Florida. But our interview today and the next three weeks of interviews will center around a unique case, that of Dean McKee. As Dean's lawyer in that case, Seth is in a position to give us a deeper look into this case. And after we hear more in depth about the case, our next guest will be Dean McKee and his fiance, Danny Cutler. It's such a pleasure to have you on today as my guest, Seth. Welcome. And tell us about the project and the, and the work you do. Well, thank you, Harriet, for having me. I'm thrilled to uh, be on your podcast. Um, the Innocence Project of Florida is a small nonprofit justice organization based out of Tallahassee, Florida. And as you said, we um, get about a thousand requests for assistance a year from people who have claims of actual innocence. So our, our, really our mission is threefold. We find and free innocent people in Florida's prisons. We help them reintegrate back into uh, a free society, which is often different. Uh, than the society they left sometimes many decades before. And really the long-range uh, work that we do and most lasting work we do is we work to change policies through the legislature, through the courts, through the United States Congress, um, and, and you know, police and prosecutorial practices in order to uh, prevent wrongful convictions before they happen. So instead of us trying to you know, write these cases one by one on the back end. We want to make sure that we can, um, if not eradicate, diminish the number of wrongful convictions um, that occur in Florida uh, going forward. And, you know, we've had tremendous success, Harriet. We've uh, been around since 2003, and we've helped free 21 individuals who have been, uh, who are innocent, uh, who together spent more than 460 years in prison for crimes that they did not commit. I mean, those are people that were taken from their families, um, separated from, you know, the, our communities, uh, and put, you know, in cages in far-flung places in Florida uh, where they're sort of left to rot, in some cases, to die in prison or die on death row. And, um, you know, we've been able to give them uh, freedom and give them a new lease on life. Right. And hope. <laughs> right. Um for uh, often when I do presentations about the Innocence Project of Florida, I was a board member for the last six years. People will ask me, how does the organization decide which cases to accept and which cases to turn down? Um, I don't have the answer to that question, but I know you do. And in addition to answering that, 
Will you tell us um, how uh, many people are on your staff? Sure. So it's a very difficult to you know, pick our cases and figure out who might be innocent and who isn't. So we really have, if you can think of two different categories of cases that we work on. So the first is cases that we would we call them DNA cases, and those are cases where there's you know, a rape or a murder or some other violent crime where the perpetrator might have left um, a piece of themselves behind at the scene of the crime, either on the victim or on an important piece of evidence, such that we can test that evidence and we can demonstrate that um, it doesn't come from the person, our client, who's been convicted of the crime, but rather comes from some other person. In some instances, we can even, um, you know, match it through a database search or, or, or some other way to an actual person who committed the crime. And so those DNA cases are one set of cases that we take, and we've had like, 15 of the 21 individuals we've gotten out have been um, DNA exonerees, and we have a number of DNA cases still in the office. But in 2012, we, we realized that we needed to expand past DNA. Um, only about 10% of all cases even have a biological evidence component to make them susceptible to DNA testing. And so we realized that uh, most of the exonerations that happen nationwide have nothing to do with DNA. And the same things that cause wrongful convictions in cases where we can prove someone innocent through DNA cause them in cases where DNA has no bearing on the case. So it was really important for us to expand past DNA. And um, so we completely changed our intake model to really focus on cases where when we're getting those initial communications, there's some indicators of innocence, whether it, you know, what it looks like what appears to be a, 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 a faulty confession or a coerced confession, whether it looks like there's a problematic or, you know, really suggestive identification of, of the defendant, whether it looks like there was some problematic forensics that were used that um, we now know over the past of time are no longer good science. Uh, if it looks like there was police or prosecutorial misconduct. So we're looking for the things that we know cause wrongful convictions to call those cases out and put investigative resources into them in order to develop legal claims that might allow us to prove that person innocent and get them out of prison. So it's a really difficult task. And we have a whole st staff of people who work on these issues. So we have a three-person intake staff all they do is do the intake and screening of our cases to help our two lawyers and, uh, pick our cases. And we have a staff investigator who goes out into the field and does all the field investigation interviews uh, to support a decision to take a case uh, and certainly to support, um, you know, uh, investigation in cases where we've already accepted and are currently in litigation. Uh, we have a social worker on our staff to work with their clients while they're still in prison uh, to help prepare uh, for their exoneration and transition into society and to help them uh, with their transitioning as long as it takes, uh, for as long as uh, they need to help even after their exoneration. And we have uh, additional um, uh, fundraising communication staff that put on awareness of fundraising and awareness events and help us reach people in the community to help build support uh, for these issues. Um, you know, obviously, we need money to do our work, and we need the investment and commitment from the community in order to do that. And we have an office manager who, um, in the back end, just keeps everything running, and so right. we need to. So, um, so it's a, we're a staff of 10 people 
and you know doing a, a, tr- a tremendously high volume of work um, and uh, on a, on you know what is even today still a shoestring a shoestring budget in comparison to other nonprofits. And you also have a set of law interns, is that right? Yeah, we have, you know, Harry, we have, uh, we have legal interns, but we have all kinds of interns. You know, the, oh. the, the, the most interesting thing about having a multifaceted office, you know, we're not, we, we're, we're sort of like a law firm, but we have all these other aspects, whether it's the transitional services or communications, uh, fundraising, you know, um, all of our legal staff. And so, um, because we're in a university town, we have, we have Florida State University here. We have Florida A&M University, which is a historically black university. We have a, a huge community college, Tallahassee Community College. We have um, a wonderful um, plethora of students who want to come work in our office. And we take students from all over the country, too. We take them to help us um, pick our cases by doing comprehensive reviews of all the materials that we collect in cases to help us better understand the cases and make a case acceptance decision. But we also hire talented interns in the area of um, communications, web design, um, graphic design, um, fundraising. We have investigative interns. We have social work interns. And so pretty much mm-hmm. all of our departments, um, you know, to the extent we have the space to supervise them, get support from students so the students can get really good experience uh, working in a fast-paced uh, nonprofit environment, but also we can enhance our capacity to do our work because uh there's there's like an endless amount of work to do and not enough people to do it right right oh that's that's you know i i didn't realize that you had interns in various areas i thought they were only just uh law interns so i learned something today that i didn't know you know before um all right so you've given us kind of an overview i wanted to pick up on just one thing that you said uh you talked about fundraising um, and you talked about, uh, you know, your budget. Uh, why is uh, it important to raise money for the Innocence Project of Florida? Don't you charge uh, a fee to work with uh, some of these people that you're helping? No, in fact, Harriet, um, it's quite the opposite. Um, the, the beauty of this work is that um, we get to do it completely pro bono on behalf of our clients. So no matter our clients or their family's station in life, they used to be rich and now they're poor because of long-term incarceration. They've just always been poor. Um, We take a lot of pride in being able to give all of our clients, regardless of wealth, um, high quality free legal representation that really far exceeds anything that they could possibly have in another context. Um, We pay for all aspects of the, of the investigation litigation of cases. We spare no expense when it comes to hiring um, experts in complex medical or, or uh, forensic cases. Um, we um, you know, spend tons of money on records in order to make sure that we're fully informed about the cases. Really anything that needs to be done in order to fully and um, you know, litigate the case in a way that goes far beyond what most others would do, we're willing to do. And, but that takes money. And, and w- the great thing about it is that when we go out and raise money, people understand that when they give us a hundred or 500 or $1,000, that's money that is going to help our current and future clients get out of prison. So 
people, you know, people who invest in this work are investing in the staff's ability, the experts here who do this work, their ability to um, to find and free innocent people. They're investing in the people who do help in their successful transition into society, and they're investing in our ability to prevent future wrongful convictions. So it's really a, a, a it's it's a really a partnership in that way, and I think our 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 base of supporters. Um, see it as a partnership. They, 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 they are standing in the breach with us on behalf of our clients. And every year we have more people come into the fold. Our budget, you know, continues to increase, allows us to hire more talented people to support our programmatic work and, um, just increases our capacity to get more innocent people out of prison. And so, um, it, it's been steady growth over the last 15 years and, um, we're real proud of, uh, all the people who help us have helped us get to this point. As you should be. All right. Um, all right. So uh, I'm trying to think if we want to go into uh, Dean's case. I, I think you've given us a very good overview of how things work uh, in the office. And the other thing that I think is important to say is the Innocence Project of Florida covers the entire state of Florida, no matter where a person is, um, you go, you will go to them. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, I always say that we have a 67 county legal practice and that's <laughs> that, you know, we're, you know, we litigate cases on the farthest reaches of the Florida panhandle over to Jacksonville all the way down um, to, you know, Southwest Florida, to Miami, and down to the Keys and everywhere mm. in between. And so, um, you know, most of our cases do come from the most populous places in Florida. Naturally, they send the most cases through the criminal justice system. Um, so it makes sense that we would have, you know, many Tampa and Pinellas and Palm Beach and um, Miami, Broward, um, Orlando, Jacksonville cases. Um, but the, the interesting thing is that our clients, though, when they get sent to prison, um, they end up in far-flung places that aren't necessarily near um, where the county where they hailed from. Um, so sometimes our clients are up in the panhandle close to us, uh, and mm. we're able to um, get to them within an hour or two uh, here in northern Florida. And then sometimes our clients are, you know, down in prison in the Everglades or around Lake Okeechobee and are really far from us, which inhibits our ability to see them as much as we'd like and we have to you know have other means of communicating with them and so it's really uh, uh you know one of the, the the beauties of working in a state like florida is that it's so big and has so many problems and um so much work to do um but that is also a disadvantage uh because it makes it hard for us to um to see all of our clients and build the kind of relationships that um, we'd like to build with them as we move towards proving them innocent and getting them out and it also, of course, takes greater expense to, um, you know, get out to see them and, and work on their cases if they're far away. If they're very far away, um, how often do you use the telephone um, to uh, – are you able to call them or do they have to call you? How does that work? Yeah, so in Florida, and, and I imagine it's like this in other states, um, when you're a lawyer and you're representing someone, um, you're able to make – uh, uh, requests for legal calls that are, you know, not part of the recorded, uh, conversations that exist on the, you know, on the phones on the walls that people have to pay exorbitant fees to use. 
And so we can really set up phone calls at whatever frequency you want. And I would say that, you know, we have a, a system here um, where, you know, based on client need and where we are in the case, they get um, more or less um, communication. Um, naturally want to focus on the people who need it the most um, based on what's going on in their case. So we do have the ability to talk to clients. Sometimes clients who are really in the thick of current litigation, we might talk to them once a week. Mm. Um, other folks, might we might talk to quarterly. It just depends on what's going on in their case. I see. But we try, we try to see all of our clients at least once or twice a year in person. Oh, oh okay. Very good. All right. So I think people have a very much clearer idea of how the Innocence Project of Florida works and now we would really like to talk about one specific case, um, and the, it's the case of, of Dean McKee. Um, can you take us back to the point where the Innocence Project of Florida began its investigation of the McKee case so our listeners get an idea of how long in his particular case it took to overturn Dean's conviction? Sure. So, um, you know, a lot of times people write to us and, uh, you know, back in the day, it used to take us a little bit of time because of our staffing issues to get really to be able to have you know, dig into any one case. Um, and so, I, so Dean wrote us um, towards the back end of the last decade. So 2008, 2009, and we really started digging into his case in 2010 and realized that um, he had what was already a pending request for DNA testing in the courts in Tampa. And that, in fact, um, the courts had already kind of, how should I say, I think they had already kind of screwed it up, you know, and so, <laughs> and, that, and that he was, he was really suffering from, um, you know, a lack of representation, a lack of advocacy of people who understand both the science and the procedure and how to accomplish, um, you know, this issue with DNA testing. And, um, and he, you know, so we were like, look, we need to get involved in this case. And this was an interesting case because, um, you know, it wasn't like a lot of our other cases. You know, again, as I said before, we're really trying to look for those cases where, um, you know, like take a rape case, for example, we know that a perpetrator of a rape leaves, um, you know, certain biological substances behind that are a byproduct of um, the sexual interaction, such that when we have a rape kit, um, we, we, you know, we have swabs that have those substances on them, we can test them, and it's really cut and dry. But in Dean's case, um, his, his was a, um, the, the crime that happened in his case was a murder of a black uh, a black man who was a vagrant who was sleeping on the uh, sort of near the front door of the Tampa Museum um, down, down there on the waterfront in Tampa, and this wasn't a case where we have a sort of a mistaken identification. In fact, Dean was there um, that night. Um, him and his brother and two other uh, young people. Dean was only 16 years old at the time. Were coming home from a club uh, going back to Pinellas County. Um, they were coming back from a club in Ybor City, and they were inebriated and needed to, um, you know, uh, relieve themselves. And they went up to the balcony of the Tampa Museum, and they found this 
um, vagrant um, man who was getting ready to go to sleep. And at the time, um, you know, Dean um, was sort of under the influence of his older brother, Scott. Um, they were both uh, avowed um, skinheads, white supremacists, um, active in that community um, in the Tampa Bay area. Um, which was, you know, it was an, a community of, of, of white supremacists, of racists. It was on the rise um, in the 1980s, um, particularly in that area. And, um, you know, so this crime, which led to this poor man being beaten and stabbed to death, um, was, you know, racially motivated crime. So it, this was a little different than anything we had worked on. Um, but from the DNA side of it, it had really important evidence. So the victim, they took fingernail scrapings from the victim because oftentimes when you have a stabbing, um, a, vic- a victim who's stabbed will, they'll usually try to block the stab, the stabbing and oftentimes will scratch um, or make contact with their fingers uh, on the, the, the perpetrator's skin, either on their hands or maybe their mouth or nose or something trying to fight them away. And which is why law enforcement collects those fingernail clippings. So Dean was already in litigation to get this evidence tested. And in fact, they had done the testing and had a result. Um, and what they failed to do was get Dean's DNA profile, his own sample, to do that, you know, test that DNA profile and compare it to the profile they had from the fingernail clippings, because obviously it's not to do the DNA testing. You have to try to determine whose DNA it is or whose DNA it isn't. And so that's kind of where we entered the case to try to get the case back on track because the court totally screwed it up and they really needed to finish the process of the DNA testing by getting Dean's DNA and, um, and uh, comparing it. Uh, Because look, if it wasn't his, that might, tell us something about how this crime did or didn't happen that would impact how we view Dean's innocence, particularly because, um, it, you know, from our review of the case and our collection of materials, it's pretty clear to us that his brother might have been the person who did this crime and actually framed Dean for it. And we wanted to have the ability to be able to use DNA testing to begin to prove that theory. Mm, that is fascinating. Now, we are um, almost out of time, but we have asked you to come back for a, uh, a next podcast to talk um, uh, in even more depth about the case. Um, so in the minutes that we have, um, uh, I wanted to make it clear how you did mention how young Dean was, but when he contacted you uh, for help with the case, how many years had he already been in prison at that time? Yeah, so he, he this crime happened in, on December 20th, 1987, and he was convicted in 1988. So it was almost it was 20 years or more oh. uh, by the time he had contacted us. And he, you know, so it, was, it had been a long time. He had spent, you know, over two decades in prison at that point. And and why why had he or or someone in the family why had had no one contacted you to uh, try to get him out of prison if he was maintaining his innocence? Well, he did he did reach out to us, and you know, a lot of times what happens is you know, someone will reach out to us and. 
our process is a necessarily slow one, and we have a lot of people writing to us. And so it oftentimes takes a long time to sort of for us to get a handle on the case. And in the meantime, he understandably made use of the mechanism that was in place to get DNA testing and did it on his own. I and, see. you know, you can you can see the difference between when someone tries to do it on their own and, um, you know, they're not a lawyer, they don't have any legal training. And, you know, he found himself in sort of a procedural mess because the court screwed up the process. And, you know, it took it took us getting involved to get it on the right track. Right. Right. I see. Um, all right. Well, we um, I'm trying to think if there's maybe one more uh, short question uh, that I could ask you. Um, a question I wrote down uh, to ask is um, what might have been a hurdle that you couldn't get over in freeing Dean? Might it have been um, missing DNA? Was that the key to his case? So I think I think the so just to be clear for your listeners, we the D, once we got his DNA profile and compared it to the fingernail clippings, we found that he was not the contributor of the DNA underneath the fingernails. And so we know from scientific studies that foreign DNA is very rarely gets under people's fingernails, except in instances of you know violent crime or uh, like those kind of violent interactions or or intimate you know sexual interactions. And so um, the, the, the science suggests that when you do find that foreign DNA, which we had here, foreign to the victim that wasn't mean, that that is suggestive that it was left there by someone who had a violent someone interaction else. with this person. And so, and so that suggested to us that the crime act might not have happened the way that it said it did. So that was the hook mm-hmm. to get back into court to reinvestigate the whole case. Very, oh, that's perfect to close on. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Seth, and uh, we will uh, invite you to come back to continue talking about this fascinating case, and thank you for being with us today, and we will see you next time on Pursuing Justice. I look forward to it. Thank you.